Okay, cool. Hey, open your Bible to Acts chapter 15. That's where we're going to conclude this friendship portion of our, of our, of our series. Man, it's kind of weird. I'm the only adult in here. You get to take over. That's crazy. You can take over. If I got like a couple of the high school boys, I think we can take over. Like we just had a big brawl. Any kids and that stuff. We can take them. That's all I need. I heard that again. Maybe all the high school boys. If I get all the high school boys, it's over. We're in the top of All of them in the top of this. I think half the class is high school boys. Oh, yeah. We can take it. For sure. Okay. So as we begin to end our friendship portion of our relationship series, I want to, I want to remind us of why it's so critical to seek biblical friendship and, and doing so by being a biblical friend. I want to, I want to re-emphasize the importance. Um, and so I'm going to show you some numbers here. So there's a couple numbers on here that I want to draw your attention to. The first is only 33% of young adults, it's people a little older than you, these statistics probably apply to your age group as well, um, if not more to you guys, but 33% of young adults feel deeply cared for by those around them. In other words, a third of you feel like people care about you. And two-thirds of you feel like, uh, there's people in my life, but they don't deeply care for me, right? Only 32% of young adults feel that someone believes in them, right? That's wild. Only 28%, just a little bit lower, 28% of young adults feel secure in who they are. Meaning two-thirds of most people, maybe this group is different, maybe there's less people that feel secure in who they are, maybe there's more people, but in general, 28% of people feel secure in who they are. Meaning two-thirds don't really feel comfortable with themselves. And part of that is adolescence, part of that is just growing and maturing and figuring it out, but part of that is because we don't know what the Bible says about us. Or maybe we know what the Bible says about us, but we don't believe it. Or maybe we know what it says and we believe it, but we struggle with it. And we need to be encouraged in what the Bible says about who you are. A couple other numbers. 28% of young adults feel sad or depressed. I tend to think that that number is a little small. Yeah, it can be small. So 30% or maybe more of young adults feel sad or depressed, and then 23% of young adults feel lonely and isolated from others. And I think this is probably, these, these numbers probably came from a group who maybe was, I don't know, maybe not answering totally honestly. If I ask this group who feels lonely at times, who feels sad or depressed, I bet there'd be a, a, a large number of you who'd raise your hands. And maybe if I were to ask how many of you feel chronically or often, regularly, feel those feelings, there probably a lot of you would say, yeah, I feel those feelings often. And I want to submit to you again that the solution is biblical friendship. That is the answer. You can look for it in all other places. You can look for the solution to your bad feelings. You can look for it in the world. 
in social media, in entertainment, in drugs, in relationships with other people. You can look for it there, and I guarantee you, you won't find it. You won't find it there, but you will find it in biblical friendship. That's the solution. And hopefully what you've taken away from the previous four weeks, if you've been here or if you've listened to it online or, or however you've gotten it, if you have, hopefully what you've gotten is you get biblical friendship not just by finding other biblical friends, but by being a biblical friend yourself. That's how you're going to find biblical friendship. It's not by being just somebody who's going along to get along and then you finally find this person who's going to complete you and make you feel uh, like you're not lonely. It's by being that person, being a biblical friend, acting on what the Bible says about who we should be. Does that make sense? And so there have been many specific points and applications up to this point, um, but our first key point for this morning is going to sum basically all of the previous characteristics and, and key points. It's going to sum them up. And it comes from Acts chapter 15. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at these verses, and we're going to see um, what God has for us in this world. So pray with me, and then we'll get started here. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the clarity of instruction for us, the clarity of um, who you say we are. Thank you for the clarity of, of what you think about us that you love us, that you value us. And you do you love us and value us so much that you want to use us. You want to empower us. You you want to employ us and, and give us purpose. So God help us to see that this morning. When I look at this group of students in particular, this group that's in this room right now, what I see a lot of is insecurity and I see a lot of uh Students who don't know exactly why they're here on earth. And maybe they've heard the answer, but they struggle to embrace it or struggle to believe it. God, I just pray this morning that your word would speak to our hearts. That God, you would very clearly communicate to us who we are and what we're here for. And that you would make us biblical friends. Give us those biblical friendships. That are gonna that are gonna help cure awful feelings, depression, and loneliness, and all those things. God, just have your way with us. We're your people. We belong to you, and so we want to submit to you right now and to your word, and just be led by it. So God, ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter fifteen. Look at verse thirty-five and thirty-six. We're gonna look at the end of the chapter. That's where we're gonna really focus in on. And it says this. If you'd read along with me. Actually, may somebody read this. Ken, can you read Acts chapter 15, verse 35 and 36? Paul also, the Barnabas, continued uh, to Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city, where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they do. Awesome, thanks. So what we see here in these verses is that these guys have a unified vision that they were following and operating in, right? A unified vision. What were they doing? Preaching. Preaching and teaching the word of the Lord, right? That's what they were doing in Antioch. And then Paul's like, hey, let's go confirm the churches that we just went and preached them. Let's go teach them. Let's go encourage them in, in what they've begun, their new faith, their new walk. Let's go 
confirmed them. So they, they're operating in a unified vision. Proverbs 29, verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So these friends, Paul and Barnabas, they've been the main characters of this study. And they knew exactly what they were made to do. And they were doing it. They were preaching, they were teaching, they were discipling. They knew what was going to give them purpose and fulfillment. And they knew what was going to excite them, to give them an adrenaline rush. They knew what was even going to potentially cost them their lives. Again, as I look in this room and I see all of you, what I think about is, right now, half of you are like half asleep, which I get. I'm tired too, right? But some of you look like that all the time. Some of you look disengaged, unconcerned about anything. All the time. And it's not because you're an awful little teenager and you're a moody little whatever. That's not it at all. It's not who you are. It's because you're a warrior. You're a soldier. You were made into a minister of reconciliation when you got saved. And you're not engaging in that. You're not engaging in it. Maybe you haven't gotten a adrenaline rush from ministry because you you haven't just gone up to somebody and preached the gospel to them or tried starting a conversation with them. I tell you what, that's one of the scariest things that you can do. Like, so on the senior trip, the, the senior class that just graduated, we went to the Lake of the Ozarks, and we climbed up on this big cliff. It was probably like 30, 30 feet, 35 feet, maybe. It was pretty tall. I don't like heights. I hate heights, actually. I'd be totally comfortable never going up higher than, like, the seat of my car. And so... All these guys, I have all these big men, like Jesse and Jonathan and Will and, you know, Kyle and Julian. And so they're like, let's go jump off the cliff. And Nate, Fife, he's like a total adrenaline junkie. Like, he, like, loves this kind of stuff. I'm like, well, I got to do it. And so I swam out there, and I was the first one to climb up the cliff. And I was like, this is off. I don't want to do this at all. Zero percent of them want to jump off this cliff. But there's like a big group, and there's like boats out there watching. So I'm like out there, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm behind that guy to do this. I don't want to, but I got it. And, and it hurt. My chest hurt, and I was like, this is not going to be fun, nor is it going to feel good. I was like, I'm not going to get injured. I'm just going to And I jumped off. And I was like, oh wait, I forgot to tuck. But I was still in the air, and I was like, wait, I still have time to tuck. And so I tucked up. <laughs> I was like, why am I still in the air for so long? And I finally hit the water. And it was really horrifying. I didn't enjoy it at all. It hurt when I hit the water. But I tell you what, it was an adrenaline rush, right? I was pumped after I jumped. And I tell you what, when you decide to, to engage someone in conversation with the gospel, that's an adrenaline rush, dude. Because... You know this feeling, and you know that you see someone in your class, or you see someone in your family, or whatever, wherever you're at, and you see someone, and you know there's an opportunity to preach the gospel, how do you feel? You're like, I don't want to do this at all. I don't want to do this. This hurts. I've got a pit in my stomach. My stomach's heavy. I'm, I'm kind of nauseous. I don't want to go talk to this person that, you know, maybe I do know, maybe I don't know. I don't want to talk to you about the gospel. It's uncomfortable. My encouragement is, man, if you'll just do it, you're not going to get injured. But maybe you will. 
to do it. Because that's what you're made to do. Paul and Barnabas knew that. So here's, here's what the Bible says your purpose is. Your my purpose is this. Here's the unified vision that we should be operating under as biblical friends. It's the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. You're supposed to be a teacher. You, middle school student, high school student, you're supposed to be a teacher. That's who God made you to be. You might not be a gifted teacher who teaches in this setting, but whatever God has taught you, you're supposed to give that to someone else. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Here it is. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus says, you guys, hey, church, go teach people what I taught you. You don't have to know all the crazy and deaf things that Pastor Sam knows, but do you know the gospel? If you've been saved, you do. Go teach that to somebody. And Jesus is with you. So when you jump off that cliff of preaching the gospel, Jesus is right there with you. Right? And when you forget to tuck, Jesus reminds you, hey, tuck, tuck, dude. Because you're going to belly flop. Come on. And you're like, oh, right, 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 okay. But you got to just decide and be willing to do that because that's who you are. We're called to preach the gospel and make disciples, even you middle schoolers and high schoolers. You are called to preach and you are called to disciple people at some level. Which Josh said last week, to just bring people along, to text them, keep them accountable, ask how they're doing. Here's your key point number one. This sums up all that we've seen in the previous four weeks. It's that biblical friends submit to the mission of God. Biblical friends submit to the mission of God. What has God told us to do? Well, biblical friend says, well, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to do it perfectly. It's going to be scary. It's going to be hard. But it's what God wants, so I'm going to do it. Does that make sense? So I'll tell you, when I started doing this study month and a half, two months ago, I began starting to study this out. I was tracking Barnabas' name from the Bible. So you can do words, any word that's in the Bible, and you can track how it's used, how God uses it throughout the whole Bible. And it can be, a lot of times, a lot of words in there bring about very fascinating studies. And I was tracking Barnabas, and I was seeing all these cool things, and then all of a sudden, I got to Acts chapter 15, and I got to verses 37 to 41, and I got that pit in my stomach again. I was like, wait, wait, what? I saw all these awesome things that Paul and Barnabas were doing, and then all of a sudden, verse 37 through 41 happened. And so what we'll see is the story of our biblical friends' ministry together continues and yet concludes in an ironic, most heartbreaking fashion. If you've been tracking Paul and Barnabas and been excited about being a Paul or being a Barnabas, your heart's going to get ripped out, thrown on the ground, stepped up on the ground. Let's read the verses, 37 to 41. It says, And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, so John Mark, but Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus, 
And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. What a way to end the friendship series. The biblical friends break up. So there's a couple phrases, as you see up here, that are going to kind of make sense of this, of what happened. It says, Barnabas determined, right, to take John Mark with him. Barnabas determined, and Paul thought not good, and then it says that the contention was so sharp between them. Now, Proverbs 13.10 tells us by, uh, uh, by pride, only by pride cometh contention. So contention, which is like when there's friction or when there's a disagreement or when two things oppose each other, that contention only comes when there's pride. Does that make sense? So Paul and Barnabas, at some point in all this ministry, pride gets infused into their friendship, whether at the fault of Paul or Barnabas, and these biblical friends are divided. I don't know about you, but it's hard to imagine this, this breakup um, between such mature and spiritual people. Like Paul and Barnabas were, were pastoring churches. They were leading people. And then they let pride get in and they break up. That's like, that would be like Sam and, and, and Pastor Kenny, like, getting in a feud and then one of them leaving. It's like, what? That didn't, no way. That would never happen. Right? It's kind of baffling. But Paul, having experienced this breakup, Knowing well the cost of being proud, he writes about the solution and prevention of such contention and unnecessary division, which is what we're seeing. It's an unnecessary division. Paul Barnes breaking up. It was unnecessary. It didn't have to happen. And Paul gives us the solution here. When he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Here it is. With all lowliness meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And here's what he, he knew that this was missing in his relationship with Paul and Barnabas. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. By the time that Paul wrote this letter to Ephesus, to the, to the Ephesians, he knew very well the importance of unity and humility and submission. He had experienced it. He had experienced the failure of it, right? And he shows us how to obtain and maintain this unity in the following chapter in Ephesians. So we have to be seeking and, and pursuing unity with each other. And here's how that happens. Here's how it works. Ephesians 5, verse 18 to 21, it says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to notice that the pronouns are plural. So if you are taking notes right now, or if you have, uh, if you have a Bible open, you'll want to underline the pronouns. <clears throat> you'll want to underline those pronouns, which are uh, yourselves, your our, yourselves. You want to underline them, and here's an interesting um, 
tool for your Bible study. The why pronouns, ye, your, yourselves, those are plural. Those are talking to a plural audience. But the T pronouns, thee, thou, those are singular pronouns. Okay? So you just write that down for whenever you're reading the Bible later on. But Paul is talking to a group of people. He's not talking to one person. That's important to notice here. And so here's what he's telling to the plural audience. Here's what he's telling them. He says, to be filled with the Spirit. What's that mean practically? What's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You tell me. I'll give you a dollar. In three, two, one. Okay, good. Bye, Tom. So being filled with the Spirit, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, if you look at Colossians, what you'll see is that being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the Word. Word of Christ. When you put the Bible in your heart and in your mind, the Bible says that you're you're putting the Spirit of God, you're filling yourself up with the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? So, <clears throat> what he's telling the church of believers, what Paul is telling us, is we need to ingest, take in, ingest the Word of God. Okay? Then he says, here in Ephesians 5, he says, uh, that, that as a result of having the Word in there, you're going to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns. So when you ingest the word of God, what happens is you speak the word of God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You're taking it in. That's what you're talking. And that also results in singing and making melody in our heart, in your heart. Now here's something that's that's critical. So he says, singing and making melodies in your heart. Your, is that singular or plural? Plural, right? It's a wide pronoun. It's plural. So he says, your, he's talking to a group of people, your heart. Is heart singular or plural? It's singular. So he's telling the Ephesians that you guys have one heart. Singing and making melody. So your worship ought to be unified. Does that make sense? Your worship ought to be unified. So there should be unity in the worship of God. In other words, I should be able, man, so when Tegan is leading us in the song, I want to be able to be singing out loud, unashamed of what people around me think about my voice or when I, when I forget to sing the right word or I mess up or my voice cracks or whatever. I want to be knowing that, that I'm singing and making melody in my heart to God, and I can look over at people. I can look at Matthew. I can look at Seth. I can look at any of you and know that you're doing the same thing. And then when you look at me, you're doing the same thing too. There's no shame in worship. There's no embarrassment because we're all just giving parts of the Lord. That's what the church ought to look like. That's what biblical friends look like. And so this also results in thankfulness, it says in Ephesians 5. And then finally, in verse 21, it says, uh, submitting yourselves in the fear of God. So when you put the Word of God, let's skip some steps. When you put the Word of God in there, what that results is submission to one another. Submission to one another in the Word of God. And this is what Paul and Barnabas were lacking at the moment of their divide. And it's what we tend to lack in our friendships in this class. How many of you are, are, are legitimately accountable 
to another person in this class in the Word of God. Meaning you're, you're faithfully, regularly plugged into a Bible study, or you're faithfully, regularly attending uh, to mentorship with someone. How many of you know that someone knows what you're reading? I mean, there's a handful of you. But in general, we kind of we just don't because it's uncomfortable because we don't want people to hold us accountable because we don't want to be humble. We want to submit to them, right? This makes me think uh, of Nate Fife. I'll tell you why in a second, but let me give you key point number two. It's this, that biblical friends are accountable to one another in the word of God. Biblical friends are accountable to one another in the Word of God. So Nate, Nate is, uh, Nate submits to me in ministry. So like if I make a call in ministry or if I ask him to do something or I say, we're going to do this, he says, okay, cool. He's very humble and submitted in that way. Um, more than most, right? But he's also my accountability and my co-laborer the Word of God. So while he might submit to ministry decisions that I make, I submit to him in the Word of God. It's a lateral submission. It's not like he's my authority. It's not like, you know, in that instance when we're just doing Bible study that I'm an authority to him in those moments. We are submitted one to another laterally. And that's, that's, that's incredible because over the years, Nate and I have had to have conversations, and we've had to work through the nuances in our friendship in an effort to submit to one another and to be unified, and it's hard to submit to each other. It's hard for me to submit to him. It's hard for him to submit to me. You know why? Because we're people. Because we're humans. Because we're weak. Because we're distractible. Because we have flesh that wants to do wicked things. But it's worth it, because I'm incredibly thankful for the accountability I have with me, how he has my back, and how he wants what's best for me, and how I want that for him. And you want that kind of friend, because that kind of friend won't let you slack. That kind of friend won't let you just do whatever you want and be miserable. You don't want a friend who just lets you do whatever you think is best. You don't want that person to, to be the most influential friend in your life. You don't want that. Because you're going to find yourself pretty miserable. And if you're not miserable now, you'll find yourself miserable in a couple of years. I promise you. I promise. But, so Nate and I have a good friendship, but not all biblical friendships get worked out and maintained. They don't. A few years ago, there was a couple of girls in the high school class. This is a you guys might know these girls, but not well. So there's a couple of girls. They were seniors. It was their senior year, and one of them was like a right hand to me and Kylie in the ministry. She was a worship leader, and the other one was like um, she was like a hospitality. So these girls were, were very, very helpful in ministry, and they had become really close, they were best friends. Um, church, but then beyond church, they were always hanging out. It was, it was really cool because it was like, man, they've got a partner in ministry, a partner in crime. Um, <laughs> it was cool. But what happened was they spent a lot of time together, and they came to me, and they were like, Jeff, will you sit down and talk with us? We're having some trouble. 
So they came to me with some friction in their friendship. And, uh, and, and I told the one to the other, I said, listen, if she's offended you, you've got to tell her. Biblically, Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says that you have to tell her how she's offended you, and then, and then you have to forgive her, and then you guys have to move forward. And they're like, okay, okay. I was like, but, but don't put pressure on yourself to be the same friendship, the same closeness as you had before. Nothing in the Bible says that Rashawn has to be best friends with Ken. If they end up being best friends, cool. If they're really close. But then if something happens where they get sick of each other, dude, be biblical, be unified, but take some separation. There's nothing that says you have to live with each other. Right? I told this to the girls. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Now, they're, they're cool now. They left that place, that meeting, with unity and agreements, with forgiveness. They were cool. And most importantly, they, they left that into ministries of fruitfulness. So one is now a disciple machine. I mean, she's discipled multiple people in our high class. She's all about investing the word of God into young ladies. And the other one, she went with the church plant to Lee Summit. And she's faithfully serving there. So they left this friendship that was fruitful in our ministry here. And then, and then as time went on, they separated, but they went into fruitfulness. There was a failure in the friendship, and they left into fruitfulness. And that's what we see with Paul and Barnabas. The end result was close. The closeness was gone, but the unity remained, and there was fruitfulness. So Acts 15, verse 40 and 41. Let's look at Paul. Let's look at what happens with Paul here. How did he lead that friendship into fruitfulness? Well, verse 40, it says, And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. So Paul moves forward in ministry with another biblical friend, and they end up doing some awesome things in ministry. Paul and Silas, he gets another guy, and they get moving. They get to, they get to work. They start Paul's second missionary journey. Paul has three missionary journeys, but he goes and just starts churches. He's making ministry happen. The church is being born, right? And on the second trip, he takes Silas with him. And they do some awesome things. And then in the next chapter here, verse, uh, verse 1 of Acts chapter 16, it says this, Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named... Who's following along in the Bible? There's a certain disciple there named Timotheus. How many of you have heard of Timothy? Of course you have. So immediately after the divide with Barnabas, Paul binds with Silas and he finds Timothy, both of which end up partnering with Paul in some amazing ministry achievements. There's a lot of fruit among these men. But consider the relationship. This is what I want you to think about. The relationship between Paul uh, that he ends up having with Timothy as a result of picking him up on this next missionary journey. So Barnabas and Paul are separated. That hurt. That hurt Paul and Barnabas. There's no way it didn't. Barnabas essentially discipled Paul. He brought him into the church. He brought him into the ministry. And then they split up. That hurts. But if you have separation in the friendship, you move forward. Right. Here's what Paul ended up um, ended up getting. First Timothy one verse one and two says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, 
and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. <clears throat> this is Paul writing to Timothy, and this is what he says about him. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. He calls him his son. It would be pretty close to somebody to call him your son. Right? In 2 Timothy 1, uh, verse 1 and 2, says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the word of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Oh, but you, I don't call anyone my son. Fellas, I love you guys, dearly. But I don't, I don't call you my son. Maybe I should. Maybe we should be closer. But, I mean, that's a pretty strong title, right? That's a pretty significant label. Paul and Timothy were pretty close. So one result of Paul dividing from Barnabas is that he picks up new friends and ultimately some of the most precious disciples that he had in his entire life. What about Barnabas? Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, Barnabas doesn't show up in the Bible from here on. Pretty weird. So historically, we don't know a lot about Barnabas. But here's what we do know. Barnabas takes Mark. Mark was Barnabas' nephew. So a little bit about Mark. Mark was a lot like you guys in, in here right now. Mark was a young, very young person, and his mom was like holding church services, Bible studies, church revivals in their house. And so Mark had a first-hand experience and view of a lot of ministry happening. But he wasn't involved in it. He was just watching. A lot of you guys watch a lot of ministry happening in your houses. Right? So he's watching it. In Acts chapter 12 and 13, they pick up John Mark, Paul and Barnabas do, they pick him up, and take him with them. Mark gets discouraged, and he leaves the missionary, the mission trip. So it's like they're on this mission trip. They're traveling, they're traveling, they're free to the gospel. They're, they're experiencing persecution, and Mark is like, hey, Uncle Barnabas, I think I'm going to dip here. This is crazy. I'm not see you. He leaves. He couldn't handle the heat. But now Barnabas says, I want to take Mark with us on this second trip. Paul says, no. So Barnabas goes with Mark. He invests in Mark. And what is the fruit of that? Well, what are the gospel accounts? What are the, what are the books of the gospels called? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, Matthew what? Mark. Mark. This dude wrote the book of Mark. So this little soft church kid who couldn't handle the heat, who couldn't jump off the cliff and just preach the gospel, who couldn't handle the heat, ends up getting chosen by Barnabas. Uncle Barney says, no, Mark, we're going to get this worked out. He invests in him, and then through that, we know that in the, in the book of First Peter, that Peter calls Barnabas his son, so Peter ends up discipling Mark, and, and Mark ends up... Plugged into ministry, writes the book of Mark, that is like Peter is the main character of that, that gospel account. And uh, <clears throat> he's discipled. In the end, this is what Paul has to say about Mark. Barnabas makes an investment. Peter makes an investment into him. And here's what Paul says about him at the end of Paul's life. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Paul says, only Luke is with him, but he tells Timothy this. He says, take Mark. And bring him with me, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Mark ends up being profitable because Barnabas made an investment. So it's, it may be hard to see this, but 
Paul and Barnabas split up. Paul is fruitful. Timothy, Silas, Titus. I mean, there's all these guys that Paul then goes and disciples. And, and the churches that he plants. And all of the Pauline epistles, a lot of the New Testament is written by this guy. Barnabas goes and invests in Mark. Mark ends up being very fruitful and very profitable in ministry. So division and ministry, let me tell you this. I'm giving you your key point, and then the last one's going to move pretty quick. Division and ministry can be absolutely detrimental and harmful to the church and the ministry. But sometimes when biblical friends let their flesh get the best of them, and they end up needing space to grow and move forward in ministry, there's grace for that. There's grace, and God will give unmerited multiplication. Sometimes you got to separate from your friends. And that's okay, because Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that all things, including things where you break up with your best friend at church, all things work together for good to them that love God. If you're a biblical friend, you just love God. To them that are the call according to his purpose. If you'll just determine, I've got to preach the gospel. I've still got to be a biblical friend. Even though I, I, I let my flesh get the best of me and I failed here, I'm going to keep moving. I want to be a biblical friend. God will make you fruitful still. So here's key point number three. We're wrapped up here. Key point number three is God makes biblical friends fruitful despite their failures and weaknesses. God makes biblical friends fruitful despite their failures and weaknesses. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect biblical friends. You're not going to be perfect. You're being perfected. You're being grown. You're being matured. If you're letting the word of God come into your heart and change you. But none of us are perfect. But God does want to use us to bear fruit, to see people saved, and to make disciples. God wants to use us in spite of ourselves. God wants to use us to reach the depressed, the lonely, the anxious people in our lives so that he can heal them with his word. God wants to use you to be a biblical friend to the lost and to one another. So I'll leave you with this question and then we're going to pray. Who will answer the call to be a biblical friend? Who's going to say, I'll be a biblical friend? I'll count the cost. I'll surrender my life to being a biblical friend. I'm done with what people think about me, don't care. Doesn't matter. I'm done with that pit in my stomach when it comes to telling people about Jesus. I'm just going to do it. I surrender. Who will answer that call? I believe that if you will answer that call, you, if you will answer that call, Here's what's going to happen. You're going to lead people to the Lord. Not only that, you're going to be able to encourage them and to lead them in their faith. You're going to be able to, to see this person change before your very eyes because God's word will grow them up and change them, and you will get to have a part of that. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing better. It's worth it. It's worth it. And I'm excited for the four, five, six people in here who are already in that place with the light. Again, that's what I want. 
and the others in here, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this series. Man, you may not know me very well, but just take my word. You want to be a biblical friend because there's blessing you. Because God will use you. And it's going to be freaking awesome. Okay? Let's pray, and then we'll uh, spray these seats down. Then you can wipe them if there's some cleaner somewhere or something. But let's pray, and we'll get in. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the friendship series. Thank you for how you've led this group. It's, it's encouraging for me to see the people to, that, that, that you prepared this for, to see these students respond to your word, to see the heads nodding, to see, the, to see this information clicking, to see that students in this ministry, we want to love one another well. We want to support each other. We want to be involved in each other's lives. And God, we want to count for your kingdom. We don't want to just do what we want to do. We want to do what you want us to do. We want to operate in that unified vision of reaching the lost and making disciples. So, God, I pray that you would, that you would over the next couple days, the next couple weeks, couple months, years, whatever, that you would remind us of our responsibility to be a biblical friend. You would remind us that it's worth it to follow you, to surrender to you. Submit to you. God, use use your word in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.